Moses is super dead. Now what? Welcome to Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ. My name is Keith, this is Brandon, we are pastors at Gospel Community Church. Welcome to the show, and we're happy to walk through the Bible with you guys. Um, yeah, help us by liking, subscribing, commenting on our YouTube, Facebook, all that good stuff, so we can get the gospel out, and it helps us um, just to get more uh, people watching this this good information. We yeah. hope it's profitable for you. We hope it's good and edifying. So Yeah, yeah. and send us questions if you have questions. We love hearing the questions. Uh, been some good conversation, and I think we're going to touch on some stuff that's related to a question we've we've been getting a lot. Oh yeah, God's wrath. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Su- surprising that's a question, but in our <laughs> culture, <laughs> it is obviously a big one. Yeah. Well, let's let's do some review. Let's recap what we talked about last week. We're we're entering into a new book today. So what are we what are we talking about? Yeah. So we saw in Deuteronomy the last two weeks. Deuteronomy is that the end cap to the Pentateuch. It sums up the whole message of the Pentateuch. It remembers what God has done in the work of salvation, yep. and it look, looks forward to the history of Israel, mm-hmm. um, what's going to be happening in Israel's history. And it's all about faithfulness to the covenant, which is really about loving God. Yeah. Um, that's the central command, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Your whole being is about loving God. Right. And so Moses, at the end of that, though, he says, if you, you, know, if you keep these, this covenant, keep these commandments you'll be blessed. You won't be cursed, right? But if you don't follow the commands, you'll be cursed. Right. And so it ends with this, this call to obedience. But at the very end, he says, and I, I know the future, you, won't, you will not be able to follow this command. Right. So it ends on this really kind of shocking note that the, through all this, you know, this good that God's given to Israel, there's something still missing. Mm. Their hearts haven't been circumcised. They haven't been changed. Uh, but at the end of it, we have... Joshua with the people of Israel as their new leader. Moses, as you as you mentioned, is super dead, and he walks into his grave. Right, that mic drop moment, and uh, Joshua is now leading the people. So we're going to see these themes of covenant of faithfulness really accentuated in Joshua and drawn out throughout the next. Se- I mean, throughout the rest of the Bible, really, but through the next several books, especially the historical books. Awesome. Yeah. So we come to the book of Joshua. What's Joshua? What's what's the whole book about? What's what, what are we what are we digging into, and how is Joshua different than Moses? Oh. Yeah, so it really, I mean, it connects, you know, seamlessly with Deuteronomy, right? The Bible is one connected mm-hmm. whole. It's not just a bunch of d- divided books, but it really coheres together. And we see here that Joshua is taking over from Moses, and in Joshua, he's going to be looking back, right? He's going to look back to God's promises as far back as his promises to Abraham. Mm-hmm. And it's about the, God's fulfilling those promises now, but he's also going to look forward to how Israel will achieve their final rest, meaning true rest with God. So there's going to be a lot of tensions unresolved in Joshua, just as there were in the first five books of the Bible. Right. Um, but that's kind of the, the basics of what's happening here in this book. Right. So why is the book named Joshua? All the books that we've looked at previously have not been the name of one of the characters, right? One yeah. Of the, one of the people in history. So why is it called Joshua? Yeah, because it's about Joshua. Cool. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if there's any deeper meaning into it than that. But yeah, I mean, we're going to see a couple of books that are named after their main characters. So yeah, right. and this one. And his name is significant. It means the, the Lord saves, right? Right. But uh, but yeah, Joshua is, is the main character. So I guess they weren't as creative with their their. Uh, I mean, the first five books in the Hebrew are just named after the first word right. in Hebrew. So 
It's not that crazy. That's pretty either. lame too. Yeah. But yeah, anyway. <laughs> awesome. So it's often helpful before we dig into it as we start a new book to look at the overall structure. So what's the structure of Joshua? How can we make sense of it in a, in a you know, pulling back, uh, you know, 30,000 foot view of the book? Yeah, Joshua has a much simpler structure mm-hmm. than Deuteronomy. It's very straightforward. So in chapters 1 and 2, uh, or chapter 1 through 12, yeah. yeah, sorry, is the conquest. So we see in a, in a big picture what God is doing through this book. In chapter 13, it's going to move into... I like the conquest section the best. It's, yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it, it's 13 to 22 are a little bit more... I, I don't know anyone who's like super excited about those chapters, yeah. um, especially if you haven't been to the land of Israel. Right. I, I mean, I have, and we studied it, but it's. I, I recognize some names. When are we going to do all. a trip to Israel? I don't know. Hopefully soon. That'd be cool. Let's do it. Yeah. General church trip going. That'd be yeah, it's a good time. Newborn babies is a great time to travel internationally. Hmm. Yeah, especially with COVID too. Why yeah, not? that's yeah. true. That's a great point. Yeah. So yeah, 13 and 22, that second half, so to speak, is all about how the land is divided. So now that they've conquered the land, at least a lot of it, how is God going to divide it up between the tribes so everybody gets a piece of the land? And then the final two chapters, 23 and 24, are Joshua's final speech. Mm. Very famous words, but there's some words that are... They're, they're very underrated. They're very important, and no one reads them. At least I never heard them growing up. So we're going to look at that as well. It ends on an interesting note. It's very Moses-esque, I guess you could say. Which is hilarious, but also pretty challenging. Kind of depressing, yeah. yeah. But anyway, we'll get there. We'll get there. So um, let's say, before we get into the actual details of the book, I think it's good for us to deal with the elephant in the room, wouldn't you say? Yeah. So... In this book, and we've seen a little bit of it up to this point in the Bible, but God is is command or Israel is commanded by God to kill people, yeah, um, as a nation, um, and and that happens a lot in this book specifically during the conquest times. So I don't think it goes it goes without saying that that's a problem for a lot of us in today's culture that God would have His people kill other people. Right. Yeah. So, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with this idea of a holy war um, with this nation, Israel? How is how is that a good God that asks His people to do such things? Yeah. Well, yeah. For, there's a lot of things to say about this. First of all, it should go without say that as Christians, we do not engage in this kind of warfare. Right. That there's no command to Christians to, as a nation, right, as a you know, to form out their own nation as Christians. And to go to war against non-Christians or something yeah, like so that. So crusades. Yeah, like that's not that's not what's in view here. Um, we're not a nation. We're not the nation of Israel. So there's a couple layers of how this doesn't apply to us in that sense. That makes sense. We're not a political entity. We don't have the same laws they do. So there's that's one of the big differences between, between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament Church. So I'm not saying that a Christian couldn't be a soldier, but you're if you're a soldier, you're a soldier for a political entity, not for the church, right. per se. So that's just one thing that's very important to say. Second, um, this is a battle. So what we're seeing in, in Joshua is a battle that goes back to Genesis 3, 14, and 15. I know you've been thinking a lot about, about these verses, um, but the the battle between good and evil, but the battle between the serpent and the woman, and there's there's something that is... Um, that is big in the story of, of Scripture that's happening here. And at this point, I mean, the Canaanites are a truly dark and evil people, and God is going to execute judgment on them. So mm-hmm. we'll look at that in a second. But I think that's really important to like think through You know, this these instances where God is having uh, his people kill other nations and other people in those nations. Um, 
it's not even about Israel just winning battles. It's not just about this one moment in time, but everything that happens in in these stories is a part of the bigger picture of God's plan of redemption, right? Yeah. And it all comes from, like, just like you said, the war between the snake and the woman, right? The, yeah. the war between, you know, these two sides of good and evil, right? And that's in the background the whole time as we read these scriptures, right? It's not just about this one people group. It's about a, a bigger battle going on. And so I think we see other glimpses of that in this book of Joshua, too. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And remember, in Deuteronomy, I think it was Deuteronomy 9, God says it's not because of your righteousness you're going into the land, yeah. but because of their wickedness. Right, yeah. So, he so foretold. God, yeah, so God yeah. is, is telling them, um, it's because these nations are wicked, I'm going to judge them. So, mm. And then the third thing to remember is it's, this is not normative for Israel. When they go to war in the future, they're not, they're not going to war in this way, typically, right. like in terms of wipe out everyone in front of you. And this, this is actually spoken of about in Genesis 15. Mm-hmm. So the fact that they're going to engage in this way in Canaan for this time is talked about in Genesis 15. And th- that means the Bible isn't flippant about this. It's not like, okay, God is just going to you know, wipe out a people. There's a specific reason that's been developing for a long time. And as a reader, you've been prepared for this. Right. There's something that's much deeper happening here. So, so, um, so there's, there's some context I hope is a little bit helpful. Yeah, no, for sure. And I still think even if we understand that, that this is part of a bigger story, uh, this isn't normative, um, I think there could still be some offense, especially with our culture, when it comes to the taking of life. Yeah. You know, I, why would God command this? You know, even in a limited context, why would God command this, right? Yeah, so there's probably two reasons, right? So first is, like I said, they're an instrument of divine judgment on the Canaanites. Okay. So we have to understand. We have to start with the with the understanding that sin leads to death. That was promised in Genesis, right? That's right. Genesis two. Right. We see that Genesis two, I think seventeen. So God says, when you sin, you die. All of us have sinned, and so all of us are deserving of God's judgment, mm-hmm. right? And that's part of being a sinner. That's hard for us to understand in the West. I get that, right, in modern culture. Right, where there's almost no Absolutely consequences for doing something wrong. Yeah, you get no. your glory in it, right? right? So the thought that God would actually punish you is a, is a tough thing. So in, in, in a earthly terms, we have a right to life, of course. Like no one can infringe on your right to live. But between us and God, we don't have the right to live. It, that's, a, that's a grace. That's a gift, mm-hmm. right, that's given to us by God. He upholds us every minute. And the fact that he isn't condemning us for our sins is a sign of his grace. Right, patience. That's yeah. hard for us to understand as, as Christians or as, as people, right? So our life is on loan from God. We, we, we live by the gracious hand of God. So that's, we have to understand that when God takes a life, um, he's not doing anything unjust. And there's no life that is taken from somebody that wasn't taken by God. God's in control of every single life. Right. So every breath we breathe is given by him, and he takes life away whenever he wants to for his own reasons. He's right. not unjust to do that. So it's the same with the Canaanites. But the Canaanites were really, really bad. And they, what kind of, what mean, kind of things were, were they into? I mean, they were into, uh, we see in Leviticus this, this mention of don't practice all the sort of bizarre sexual like incest and that sort of stuff. Right. And he says again and again that the, the Canaanites, the nations are going to go in, enter into, those nations practice these things, right? So sexual immorality. So obviously uh, very corruption. perverted, like yeah. to a, to a, I mean, way beyond even what we are in America. Obviously, right? Um, obviously, they worship demons. That was a big thing. And then one of the worst things well, it doesn't is, really seem too far off from from America. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that one. <laughs> and then child sacrifice was one of the big ones. They actually sacrificed children. So so God is saying because of that, 
mm. because of what they're they're doing, you have to you have to be my instrument of judgment. Right. So yeah, and it's because of because of the unrighteousness of these nations that God is using them this way, not because they are better. Right. So so that's the first thing. And the second is like I said, God is very patient with them. Mm-hmm. He's given them hundreds of years to repent of this. Right. So going back to Genesis 15, when God promises to Abraham that he's going to bring him into his people into the promised land, mm-hmm. uh, 400 years in the future, in Genesis 15, 16, it says, they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So iniquity means sin. So he's saying the sin of the Amorites hasn't been filled up yet. It hasn't got as bad. It, he, in other words, he's being patient with them. Right. He's waiting for them. He's allowing them to live for generations committing these kinds of sins and waiting for, you know, to judge them. Right. And think about that. The fact that they are living, that these people are able to live, means that more injustices are perpetrated against people as well. Right. Yeah. So, and, and we get mad at that too. We go, well, God, why would God let evil people do evil things? Right. Um, do, wait, so do you want evil people destroyed or do you want them to live? You can't have it both ways, right? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a great insight because it's, you know, you think of like the first sin of, you know, Adam and Eve taking the fruit. Like, I think to us, the taking of the fruit seems mundane and pointless, like a pointless rule, right? What's up with the fruit? Why take the fruit, right? Obviously, that points to the like rebellion of God, but like these acts of sin are not just like the simple act of eating a piece of fruit. Like, they're evil in themselves. Like, yeah. Even, <laughs> yeah, even normal people that aren't, you know, aren't believing in, in the Bible right. could see that this is incredibly yeah, it's wicked. horrible stuff. Yeah, incredibly wicked. So we have to see that like God has been patient with them 400 years and even leaving his people in slavery for that long yeah. to avoid punishing these people before the right time. Right. Yeah, so there's a lot of patience. Third, if the Israelites don't destroy these people, God says they'll be brought into the same kind of immoral living. Mm-hmm. So this sort of evil is going to spread. So God says in this context, you have to do away with it. So we saw in Deuteronomy just how serious they were supposed to be about following God, right? right? That you, if your neighbor tells you to leave God and follow a false God, that you you would kill them in that context. Right. Very intense, right? And we see that in Leviticus, or sorry, Exodus thirty-four as well. Mm-hmm. That these people are going to be a snare to the Israelites. So make sure that you drive them out fully. Right. So there's a there's a very specific reason for this kind of warfare. Right. So those those things are important to understand as well. Yeah. Awesome. So many connections. You know, my mind just went to like, what should have Adam and Eve did down in the garden? Adam should have protected the garden, right, from evil, but he didn't. Yeah. And then, obviously, we see that you know, same thing happens to Israel. They don't protect their nation, right? They, yeah. they let they let the evil sneak in. So um, that's the other thing is, I'm like, regardless of the command of God, um, I, I, you can't be that upset because they never follow it. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they true. do it in very small instances, but they're not actually. Even if God is commanding them, you know, very literally wipe out the whole people, which we can talk about in a second, um, they're not doing anything close to that. So Right. Well, I think that's actually a great point. Like, is God literally telling Israel to wipe out every single man, woman, and child in these nations and totally obliterate them from the face of the earth? Is it genocide? So, yeah. So some people say that this is hyperbolic language. Mm-hmm. Hyperbole being an extreme exaggeration, right? Sort of... Um, and this is actually common in ancient times that people would use idioms about warfare, certain expressions that would sound very comprehensive. I've completely, you know, like we would say today, like, oh, I crushed you 
in that ping pong game, which well, I never well, have. Yeah, I okay, never have. Okay, but let's just be clear um, here. In basketball. There you go. Okay, um, yeah. Well, yeah, that's true. And so, you know, someone in the future might read that and say, oh, I crushed you. Did he actually, like, take a hammer and smash Keith into the ground until he was dead? No, we understand that's a, that's an idiom. Right. Okay. And maybe that's a kind of a, a weird example. But the, the, the same idea may be in effect here. They're speaking in a way that's very comprehensive. And that's how you spoke in terms of battle records. That's possible. That's very possible. And there's clearly some hyperbole in the book. Right. So we see in chapter 11, there's this comprehensive language. Everyone was was destroyed, right. you know, to top to bottom. Yeah. And then in chapter 13, verse 1, we see that they haven't driven out everybody. Right. Verse 1 and verse 2 of chapter 13, that there's actually people that are still there. Right. So it spoke just in the previous chapters about complete annihilation. And here we see that that was hyperbolic right. in some way. Awesome. And the idea there is that God gave them complete victory. Right. So that's kind of the meaning, not that every single person was destroyed. So there's definitely some hyperbole here. There's also, people will, will say, I think there's some truth to this as well, that Jericho, Ai, Hatsor, those are the three cities that right. were that were devoted to destruction, mm-hmm. completely wiped out. Um, other cities weren't, to our knowledge. And actually you have... In those cities today, you have burn layers where, where mm-hmm. they can see that this this actually happened. Which is pretty crazy. Yeah. And, and, I, and I've been to all these cities. Um, these were not... Jericho and AI, you know, I remember going there. These weren't massive cities. Mm-hmm. These were fairly small. So people will say these were actually, you know, uh, military forts, sort right, of outposts yeah, yeah. that would have had primarily men anyway. So mm-hmm. this command to wipe out men, women, and children was sort of a way to say, make sure no one lives. Mm-hmm. But there, there weren't going to be children there. Anyway, in a in a military fort, so that's also that's also very possible. So yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if again, you know, in acts of war, like if if these are military outposts, you know, that are totally devoted to destruction, it, it makes at least it softens the blow that God is not having His people go around killing women and children willy nilly, right? Yeah, I yeah. Again, it, even if he even if he was. I think there is a specific reason for mm-hmm. that, right. but I don't think that's exactly what's what's happening in these passages. Right. And At but, least there's a lot of questions t- to be addressed. I would say exactly, and I think we can think through these and and like look a little closer at the stories as we read through them, right? Yeah. And so, and, and at least you know, try to look at the goodness of the stories and what they're actually pointing to. Whether what is the story trying to teach us is how we should be thinking through these, right? That's right. So that's right. So big question: Is it genocide? That, that Israel is doing to these people groups? I, I would not say so, no. Right. No, like I said, there are some questions that I think you can you could really wrestle with for a long time, mm-hmm. but kind of my general thinking on it is is no. They are driving the people out. That's, that's supposed to be the mission, to fully get these people out of the promised land, to have a new land, but it's clearly not what they do, and it doesn't seem like that's necessarily... The, the exact implication of God's command, they're going to kill every single person. Right, makes sense. Cool. Well, do you want to get into the book a little bit and we'll actually look Let's at the conquest? It. Yeah. So for, you know, it's a bittersweet thing. You know, God's people through this is going to come into the, that promised land, right? So yeah. they're going to get what God had promised, you know. Obviously, it's short-lived. Um, but, you know, there, there's a lot of blood and death and sin you know, through these first 12 chapters. So let's dig in a little bit and, and look at the story. So. Yeah, so it starts off, right, uh, at the beginning, God says, Moses, my servant, is dead. So Super dead. rip Moses, um, and now Joshua's going to take over. So he says, this promised land is, is going to come to you, right? Um, and luckily, God never hangs anything on one specific servant of his. Moses right. was obviously very important, but 
God is God is has you know great Except plans for here. Jesus. Well, okay. Uh, <laughs> I got Jesus juked. Um, and then in verse five, we see that he's he gives this charge to to Joshua. So he says, "Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Mm-hmm. I will not leave you or forsake you." Right. Verse six. Be strong and courageous. Verse seven. Be strong and courageous. Mm-hmm. Be careful to do according to all the law that was given, right? So follow the law. And really, you have to see in this speech that God is speaking to Joshua, but he's also through Joshua speaking to the whole nation oh, yeah. that he's leading, right? He's, he's, these are the fundamentals, right? Follow the covenant. Live by faith. Trust in me. Remember my presence is with you. That's the defining reality mm-hmm. of being an Israelite. There was nine. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. The Lord of God is with you, right? That's right. No. Yeah. Yeah, we see the same thing in the New Testament. Absolutely. And, and that God's going to bring them into the promised land mm. and give them that final rest. That's his plan for Israel. And so these words are instructive for the whole nation. Right? I love verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Mm. Be yeah. strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Mm. So Joshua is, is strengthened by, by this command. And so he's looking for that rest that God gives to his people and Kind of ironically, that rest is going to come through warfare. Right. They have to conquer and they have to be a holy people in order to um, to take hold of that rest that God's promised to them. Right. So that's what we see at the very beginning. Um, and God, yeah, God shows that Joshua is taking the place of Moses, and He'll show that and He'll sort of um, verify that, and give them some proof of that by these miracles that happen at the beginning of His ministry. So the sending of the spies, the crossing of the river, these are things that Moses did. Right. Even the way that Joshua speaks at the end, these are all reminiscent of Moses himself. Oh yeah, you can't read. You know, if you're reading these books back to back, you can't help but see. You know, uh, you know, just uh, reiterations almost, or just different images of what happened before, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, okay, chapter two. Um, something we've seen already: spies going into the land, right? Yeah. What's different this time? Well, this time he only sends two spies, and and this is important, right? Because last time Moses sent twelve spies. He said, "You got forty days. Mm-hmm. Go and tell us, basically, if we should go into the land or not." Right. Right. This time Joshua sends two spies. Mm-hmm. Why two? Well, because. Only two came back faithful the last time, right. so he doesn't want to risk the same thing this time. <laughs> so he gets his two best, <laughs> sends them in for about three days. We see in chapter one there's about a three-day period that he's been telling the, the elders about. So three days and focus on Jericho. Don't go to the whole land. Don't tell us if it's good or not. Don't tell <laughs> us if we should go in or not. Just spy on Jericho, which is this sort of crucial city right. across the Jordan. Mm-hmm. And so he's limiting their mission so there's less chance for them to fail. Right. Because when God's people are given a chance, when they're given rope, mm-hmm. they hang themselves with it. That's what, that's what happens, right? So I, I love this, right? He, he gives these commands. They, they go in. And, um, and then in, in verse 1, we see that they actually go into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. Yeah, what's up with that? Are these spies going to visit a prostitute? How is that it's, okay? It's, it's a little problematic, right? <laughs> I would not recommend this for a Christian man today, okay? <laughs> Let's just be clear about that. But the 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 idea, so obviously she is a prostitute, but she's also, her, her home would be an inn for travelers. Mm-hmm. So it'd be a place where there'd be a lot of information transferred. It doesn't seem like they are you know, engaging in sexual morality with Rahab, but it is a little sketchy, right? It, granted, it is, it is sketchy. So they, they go to this place, they stay there, and the 
they're bad spies, apparently, because the king of Jericho he finds out about them pretty much immediately, mm-hmm. sends his soldiers to go and to capture them, and Rahab actually betrays her king. She commits treason, mm-hmm. right, in order to protect them. Right. And she does this for a certain reason. She does this because she is in fear of Yahweh. She's in fear of the God of the, of the Israelites, right? In verse 9, she says, we, we've heard about what's happened, that you've come from by God's power from Egypt, and we're scared of you. Right. We heard about the Red Sea crossing, verse 10. And verse 11, our hearts melted. Mm-hmm. And listen to what she says. She says, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. I think this is so crazy. We get to hear about the perspective of these enemies of God's people and how they feared Israel. And yet, you know, in, in you know, under Moses' rule, the spies were just terrified, right? Yeah. They didn't even realize that the fear of the other people, right? God was already working in their hearts to crazy. make them conquerable. And so, yeah, Rahab, what she acknowledges here in verse 11 is important. She's saying Yahweh is the God of heaven and earth. God, Yahweh mm-hmm. is the God of everywhere and everything. He's not just a regional deity right. as they believed him back then. She, she understands something about who this God is. Right. He's not contained in Egypt. He's not contained in the desert. He's everywhere. Right. And so she wants to fall under that protection. Mm-hmm. So in verses 12 and following, she asks them to save to save her when they conquer the, the, the city, to save her and her family, right. and they make a deal with her, and they say, we will, right? So this is an incredible sign of faith, right? Rahab is a Canaanite. She should be destroyed. She should not be you know, part of the promised people or God's people, but because of her faith, She's saved. There's hope even for Canaanites. Right. Yeah. And I think that's a, you know, uh, I think it reinforces, you know, our thoughts on, you know, is this genocide? Is God trying to totally wipe out these people groups? And it's no. God is offering grace to all, you know, people groups and offering his love and his mercy to people of every nation and tribe, right? So exactly. even even here, as early in the, as the Old Testament that we are right now, um, we can still see that graciousness and patience from God to other yeah. nations. So. Yeah. Okay, so we have the spies go in, um, not really seeing a prostitute, problematic though, um, and then we get other glimpses of what uh, we've seen so far in God's story, right? We see a crossing of a river, right? Crossing of a river, God parts the waters. Mm-hmm. This is this is a picture of how they started their journey, right? They right. started their journey exactly. by crossing the Red Sea. Now they're going to enter into the Promised Land in that journey by crossing the Jordan River, mm-hmm. and both times God does a miracle, and uh, we see uh, in verse 7, right, God says why he's going to do this to, to Joshua. Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that I, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Right. So God is through this miracle showing them that God is working through Joshua now, just as through Moses. Right. So this sort of g- gives legitimacy to his entire ministry, to his leadership, and God does this incredible miracle. Right. And then they, you know, chapter 4, they set up a bunch of stones as, as a remembrance of what God has done, right? So That's right. And then um, then this, uh, you know, tribe of Israel is going to get ready for conquest, right? That's right. And how do they do that? So the way they prepare for conquest is by circumcising all the males. It makes sense, right? It makes sense to me, right? <laughs> what? Do, well, yeah, what do you need when you're in the battle? You need a fever, 
for a couple of days because you've cut off part of your body. Yeah, more aerodynamic or something. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I thought immediately of Genesis 34, which they had to have too. Right. Right. When, when you know, Jacob's sons trick the Shechemites, they say, hey, if you guys all get circumcised, then we'll all intermarry. It'll be great. And then when they get circumcised, they they're, all, all. they're all fevered up, and then they just slaughter them all. <laughs> so so if you just cross the Red Sea, or not the Red Sea, you cross the Jordan River, right? you're now in a new land. You're vulnerable. Right. You're camped out. And now all your men are circumcised. <laughs> what would stop an army from coming and just slaughtering right. everybody? So this is an act of faith. Mm. It's obedience to God, but it's it's an act of faith. They're trusting in God that God's going to protect them, and they're starting new. They're cutting off the, the flesh. They're right. it's a mark of a of a new beginning. Of covenant a, renewal yeah, again. Covenant renewal, all yeah. that sort of stuff. And then they they do the Passover. Yep. So the Passover was a feast that obviously was the beginning of their entrance. Uh, into the, the wilderness. Again, they do it here. Um, this was a feast that started on the first day of a new year. Mm-hmm. So it's a sign of new uh, new beginnings, right? They, I mean, the whole thing is pointing to that they are a, a new people coming into the promised land, coming mm-hmm. into what should be like the Garden of Eden for them, and they're they're um, celebrating God's redemption. Yeah, what better way to do it than the Passover? I mean, remembering God's faithfulness and mercy to them, right? That's so, right. And then what else? And then they meet the commander of the Lord's army. So Joshua has this encounter with this commander, this angel of, of God, or uh, maybe it is you know sort of the second person of the Trinity. It's a preincarnate Christ. But he says when he when he meets when Joshua meets this man with the sword, he asks him, "Are you for us or for our adversaries?" Mm-hmm. Two options. Are you for us? Or are you for our adversaries? And he responds by saying, no. No, oh, dang it. No, wait. <laughs> wait. Uh, yeah, those are two, those are two options there. You, uh, no, he says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Mm. Now I have come. So and what's then, that all and about? Then he asks him, verse 15, right? Take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy. So it indicates that this is Yahweh, mm-hmm. right? That this is God, the angel of the Lord, right? All of that. Um, the idea there is he's saying, I'm not, I don't fight, I'm not bound to any person. Mm-hmm. Um, you are bound to me. Right. Right. So the question is not, is God going to be on our side? The question is, will Israel be on God's side? Right. That's the question. And I think it, like, again, like what we were talking about earlier about genocide and stuff, I think this image of this angel coming shows us that it's not just about this nation, it's not just about the conquering nations, it's about God's plan. Of of and his war against you know the ultimate evils of this world sin right so it's mm-hmm. it's it's pulling back and it's showing us wow this isn't just about this one group of people this one nation this is about something so much bigger yeah and exactly it's, it's God's plan of hope for the world right so. exactly that's that's a great observation <clears throat> absolutely so in chapter six we see the the initial battle the, mm-hmm. the inaugural battle so ah, to speak Jericho. in the promised land which is Jericho mm-hmm. and the way they fight this battle is very important for teaching Israel about who God is and what He's going to do for them. I, I think you have some you had some interesting insights when you were talking before we were recording this. What what? Why is it such a unique way to to win a battle? Well, yeah, I was I was thinking about this a lot. Like, why yeah. is it that they? So what happens if you don't know is they march around Jericho right. for several days, right? So for a week they're marching around, and mm. the last day they shout trumpets, and the, yeah. yeah, the walls come tumbling yeah. down, right? Why that way? And I was thinking, well. I don't know. I mean, this is maybe just kind of ironic, but what, Israel has not been fighting that much. They've mm-hmm. had some battles, but they haven't been fighting very much. But for 40 years, they have been doing one thing, which is walking in circles. <laughs> They've just been walking in circles in wilderness <laughs> for 40 years. And so God has them walk in circles. Right. 
just walk in circles, right? The first seems, skill at walking aimlessly. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, and it's very counterintuitive. How could this ever be helpful? And yet God, through his strength, through his power, is able to take these days of marching and turn it into victory. Oh, well, I mean, Israel, I mean, means God fights, right? So yeah. it kind of makes sense, you know, with God's previous, you know, workings through this nation. But, Absolutely. Yeah. And the number seven is very prominent in this chapter. It's mentioned 14 times. So seven is very important. I mean, mm-hmm. this picture of creation, right? But also to God's it's the number of completeness that God is the one who's going to do this for Israel. Right. That's the big takeaway. God is on their side. Rahab herself is rescued. Right. Um, there's there's incredible hope here because of this. Mm-hmm. But then we have chapter seven come along. Right. What's in chapter seven? More, chapter seven. More conquest. Yeah. Chapter seven. Um, after they, you know. After they go to battle Jericho, they go to fight Ai, mm-hmm. and they are defeated. And it turns out that there's actually sin in the camp because right. this man Achan, instead of destroying, what are you supposed to destroy? Which are the items taken from Jericho? Dang it! He kept them. He hid them. Achan, don't name your kid Achan, right? That's not a good name. No. no. And so um, there's a real problem here, right? Which is that they have to deal with this sin, and so they do, right? He's he's destroyed. How do they destroy um, him? So they burned, let's see, um, they stoned him with stones. Yep. <laughs> and then they burned with fire. Uh, yeah, so it's it's pretty, yeah, fire, and it's a, it's a brutal way to die. Um, but but the idea is, the, the important takeaway from that is that sin will lead to defeat. Right? Right. Obedience is key for Israel. Right. God's the one who fights for them, but they have to obey. They have to trust God and obey right. him is the big idea. And God's been warning, I mean, ever since the garden, but especially in Deuteronomy and uh, Numbers, God has been warning them about the consequences of not being obedient, right? Yeah. It's just like God has told them repeatedly. It's like a parent telling their kid, don't do that. There's consequences, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. We so saw they, people like Achan. So. Yeah, yeah. So they have, they, they have victory, right, because of their obedience. Mm-hmm. And in verse 9, they're actually deceived by... These these Canaanites that are called Gibeonites, right. a certain branch of Canaanites, right? But they're very clever. They come to them and they say, "Oh, we've come from a distant land." They find some. I don't know how they found like old moldy bread. And they found like like worn down shoes. They've just found someone in town, like who's got the moldiest <laughs> bread in town? Uh, which yeah, probably at my house, like just <laughs> lost in the corner. But uh, they, they anyway, they, they're very clever. They come. And they go, "Look, we've been traveling. See, here's our shoes. Here's our bread. Here's our wineskins." And so they make a treaty with right. Israel. But in verse 14, this was the flaw of, of Joshua and leaders. It says the men um, took some of their provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord. Right. So they don't consult God, and their trick, and this ends up becoming uh, a, a problem, that they've, they've had made a treaty with, an alliance with, some of the Canaanites that they were supposed to defeat. Right. But, um, but anyway, so we see that in chapter 9. Chapter 10, Joshua is fighting the enemies of the Gibeonites, and he... Calls upon God to make the sun stand still. Mm-hmm. Crazy, crazy miracle, right? Um, and and this is you know kind of unparalleled miracle, as verse fourteen says. But the big idea again is God is fighting for them. God is fighting for Israel. Right. And um, anyway, so that's what's happening in the first half of the book. And then in chapter thirteen, we see that the land it's not fully conquered. Right. So the beginning of thirteen, it it, it keys us in right. that. The land has not been fully conquered. Yeah, there's, there's still there's a bunch of stuff that's been conquered, you know, through you know Joshua and Moses. But then there's more to be conquered, right? Yeah, so. and I love the first couple verses where it says, "Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, you are old and advanced in years.'" 
<laughs> okay. You're super old. So um, this is going to be a problem for them as well because they have to divide the land and then figure out what's what's next for the nation right. when their leader dies. So th- this is kind of, you know, through the next 10 chapters or so, this is all just about how the land is divided. It's, again, not super riveting reading. Yeah, it's not riveting, but, it, I mean, as always, it's important. So, like, why is... Why is it important, even though it's boring? Because we have to, you know, there's a lot of this kind of stuff that we've already gone through in the Old Testament. So what's valuable about this idea of giving the land? And first thing that comes to mind is just they're actually getting the promised land. It's, yeah. it's, like, it's pretty cool. Exactly. That, I mean, that is, right, they, they have the promised land. And not only is it that they as a nation have the promised land, but every individual, every tribe, mm-hmm. every individual gets a piece of that land. Crazy. And that's going to be in your family for perpetuity. You can't sell it, not permanently. Right. You can basically like lease it to somebody, but you can't really sell it. So, I mean, this is this is very important, mm-hmm. right? Israel's faith is is tied to the the real promises of God, right? right? Rooted in history, in in actual time, and in land, in, in physicality, yeah, yeah in, yeah, in the history of their people. So, this is very important for us that God's promises. They're not disconnected from the world, not just like spiritual promises, but they're connected to the actual creation around us. Yeah. And so this reminds us of that. Salvation is going to happen in this place, uh, in a real point in history amongst this people. Yeah. We, so they, I feel like we forget that even as Christians, like of God's promises in the New Testament. Like God is going to recreate this world, right? Yeah. Like God is concerned about the physical. It's not just, you know, angels and floating on clouds. And, Absolutely. Yeah. You know, like Absolutely. So then we get to the end of the book and we have Joshua's final charge sort of his you know deuteronomy was was the speech of moses Mm -hmm. Um, joshua's speech is a lot shorter but it's very very important so he's charging them with these reminders of that you have to follow god's law Mm -hmm. you have to you have to look to god you have to trust in him right verse 6 of of 23 therefore be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of moses right um, just as he was charged in chapter one, yeah, he's charging them. Follow yeah, the Torah. Follow, follow the law. It's not complicated, but it is difficult, right? Uh, verse ten, he he reminds them that one of you could fight a whole army because it is the Lord your God who fights for you, yeah, just as He promised you. I really like verse eleven of twenty three. It says, "Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God." So yeah. all all wrapped up in obedience and the law. And trust is a love and affection for God, right? Because yeah. that's essentially the opposite um, that we see from the nations, from those who turn away in Israel, is that they don't love God, right? Yeah. And so, like, obedience is linked to, like, affections for this creator. And Absolutely. I think yeah. that's really cool to see from Joshua and Moses. And, yeah. yeah, it's very, I mean, it's very Deuteronomy 6, right? Yeah. Um, you know, love, love the, your, the Lord. And he's, so he's pointing back to Deuteronomy and saying, you really have to follow that. that. You mm-hmm. have to cling to that. You have right. to remember to love God. Don't forget these things, right? right? Same ideas. And then in chapter 24, his sort of final charge is given. And verse 15 is a very, very famous verse, right? If it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, mm-hmm. whether the gods of your fathers serve in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house... We will serve the Lord. Yeah. Make a decision, Israel. Who are you going to follow? Who are you going to follow? And the people say boldly, "We will follow the Lord." Yeah. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna stay true to the Lord, right? Verses sixteen and following. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. And then I, I never hear this mentioned. I never I never hear this talked about very often. But because we like that part, right? That right. 
choose this day and we're like, yeah, like I'm we'll gonna <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna serve God. Like I'm gonna be a good person. I'm gonna do the right thing. But look at what he says in verse 19. <laughs> After they've given their this, yeah yeah we're we're committed. This is Moses has yeah right? this is very Moses yeah. yeah. But Joshua said to the people, verse 19, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Whoa, pretty pretty harsh. And then, yeah, then they respond in verse 21, no, but we will serve the Lord, right? <laughs> uh, he's like, oh, I don't know about that, right? He says, verse 22, you are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Then he says, then put away the foreign gods that are among you. That's a problem. Already there's idols apparently among them. And incline your heart to the Lord. So he's pointing out they don't have the ability to change their heart, to make themselves uh, draw near to God and follow God. There's still that that problem that remains from the Pentateuch, which is God hasn't given them a new heart. So he, he knows it. You're not able to do this. You're going to fall short. This yeah. is a problem. But he leaves them with that warning, and, and he, that's going to that's gonna go into the book of Judges. Yeah, and then Joshua himself is super dead now. Yes, So that's two right. great leaders of this great nation, dead, super dead. So um, that concludes the book of Joshua for us, but we're not finished yet. We've got to talk right. about how the gospel in the New Testament connects to this story. How does this fit into God's plan of redemption uh, in the whole scope of history? That's right, yeah. Um, so for the first thing we can see that's very important is Rahab herself. Mm-hmm. Right, Rahab's salvation, as I mentioned, a, a person that was part of this sexual perversion as a culture, but her personally, mm-hmm. right? She's in this military base sleeping with, with men for money. She's not a good person, and yet she is saved by faith. Right. She trusts in God's promise. I like James 2.25. says, in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Mm-hmm. And he uses a picture of how, you know, even the, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Rahab showed her faith, in other words. Right. She showed and vindicated the faith that was in her by this act of, of faith in God. Amen. By, by doing this good work. So, um, so, yeah, so she has faith that that's what saves her. And um, and she ends up in the lineage of Jesus. Yep. She ends up in the line of salvation. So she's a very important character in the story. Yeah, Super amen. important. And then we we also see all of Joshua points to the need for a king. Right. We'll see this in Judges as well. It's going to be a theme. Yeah. 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 But G- it's incredible that when Jesus comes, he doesn't come with a sword. Hmm. He doesn't come conquering. Jesus could have. Right. He could have done holy war against people like us. Right, which many people expected him to come in such a way. Yeah. Right, no. Judge those Gentiles. I mean, we're you and me, we're Gentiles, right? right? And and we were participating, you know, our, our ancestors and we ourselves have been partaking in evil things in our lives. And yet Jesus doesn't come with a sword. He he comes to conquer, yes, but he does it through the sacrifice of himself on the cross. Yeah. In fact, that's the way that that the Bible will speak of it in the book of Colossians and a lot of places, really. But I liked also, you know, Christopher Wright points out that in Matthew two to four, Matthew's chapter, Matthew chapter, chapters two to four, that there's a lot of reference to geography at the beginning of Jesus's mm-hmm. ministry. Right. So he starts off in Bethlehem, the south of Israel. He goes to Galilee in the north. He, um, the Magi come from the far east, and then he ends up going on a trip to Egypt as a, as a young child. So there's all of these references to this, the scope of the land. Kind of reminds us of Joshua, 
Right. But the big idea that Christopher Wright mentioned was that these, this is loaded with the idea of Jesus is going to conquer the land. Mm. He's going to make the land new, and not just the land, but even beyond the land. Even right. the east and the west, the entire world will come in subjection to Jesus. He's going to be the true king. Amen. And so he does that through the cross, right? Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Amen. So Jesus conquers through his through his death. He he pays the price for sin, but he also disarms the spiritual powers that are against us. Right. They have no no more ammo. They have no weapon against us because Jesus has paid that price. That's his victory. Right. It's the ultimate form of conquest against the again the main enemy that humans have in this world, yeah. right? Sin, darkness. So. Absolutely. Awesome. Um, and then, of course, Jesus brings them to the, us to the promised land. Yeah. Right? I mean, he's the one who yeah. brings us in. And not only that, but the name of Joshua Yeshua, um, yeah. in, in, is Yeshua, yeah. right? In the New Testament, how it would be pronounced is Jesus. Hmm. Jesus. So Joshua and Jesus have the same name, and Jesus is the one who's going to bring us to that final rest, right? bring us into the true promised land, the new heavens and new earth where everything is made new. And we rest completely and fully, not because we've conquered, but because Christ has conquered for us. Amen. He's done what we couldn't do. What Joshua knew, they couldn't do. Yeah, amen. So Joshua is a great name for your kid. Yeah. Um, Aiken, not so much, right? Not so much. <laughs> okay. Well, that's all we got for the book of Joshua. Join us next week. We're going to go through the book of Judges. It's going to be awesome. Hope you it's join us. Um, hope you enjoy Daily Gospel, equipping you to know God through His uh, Word and His Son, Jesus Christ.